0: Predators Protector runs out of excuses and four years of breakthroughs in fight against the money power coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 16th of December 2021. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director, Robert Barwick. Welcome.
1: Thanks, Elisa. Last show of the year.
0: That's it. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about uh, yesterday's fiery Senate inquiry, the third of the hearings on the Sterling First issue, and about uh, actually a bit of a rundown of the last four years of interventions we've made in terms of Senate inquiries and legislation we've got up, uh, and the next phase of what we'll be doing. Now, don't forget, if you like the show, hit the like button, subscribe, and ring the notification bell, and you'll be alerted of new shows coming up, and share as widely as you can. Now, one notice before we get into the first topic.
1: Uh, Julian Assange, we put out a press release this week in response to the uh, ruling in uh, the United Kingdom, upholding the, the United States' appeal against the blocking of extradition, so now it goes back to another court. This is this is ridiculous. The Australian, we've called on the Australia's political leaders to grow a spine and demand Biden release him. Right? It, it, he is a journalist who exposed. He's only the only crime he did was he exposed war crimes, but the war crimes our side committed. Right? Mm-hmm. That's what he did and they are determined to kill him, they are punishing him, they're persecuting him to death, and they're making an example of him. There's a growing revolt, though. This week, Barnaby Joyce, the Deputy Prime Minister and the Chair of the National Security Committee of Cabinet, he wrote um, an article saying he's got to be released, brought back to Australia. Anthony Albanese is saying this. So we we often on this show, Lisa, give people marching orders. Please, here's something you can do. We don't have any relating to... All those various inquiries we've been um, involved in this year, except for those who are... Uh, it, we've still got... Well, by the time people see this, it'll be over. The 18th of December, in two days' time, is the is the deadline for the submissions to the Regional Banking Task Force, right, on a postal bank. But what you can do, as we encourage in the press release, and have a look at it, we'll, we'll put the link below, make phone calls to Scott Morrison's office, Maurice Payne's office, the Foreign Minister, and, and uh, the Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, and get angry. Demand they tell the Americans, let him go, right? Because if they don't, we are just, we're watching a, a, um, a, a, an Australian who should be a hero for what he exposed, um, we're watching him be sacrificed mm-hmm. to our supposed security relationship, mm-hmm. right? It's like the man in the iron mask, you know, and the man in the iron mask, he had to be kept in the dungeon, in the iron mask because for security of France,
2: mm-hmm. Right.
1: That's what's happening with Julian Assange. He's our man, the Iron Mask. He has to be kept in the dungeon so that um, to support our security relationship with the United States. No, it's wrong. And so please do something about our it.
0: our government demanding this of the U.S. Would make and should make a big difference. This is our great ally, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's take advantage of that. Um, all right, first topic: um, Predators Protector runs out of excuses. Um, now we're talking about. Uh, The predator's protector is Mr Joe Longo, the head of ASIC, and this is in the ongoing inquiry, as we mentioned, into Sterling First, um, which you can find out more about. We've talked a lot about it on the show, so most people are probably aware this was a scheme whereby uh, a lot of elderly people... Uh, engaged in a forward payment of rent to a company that was going to allow them to live in their home until they passed away and then the money goes to their families and so forth. What they were actually getting sucked into was a complex managed investment scheme. We've just put up a new video on this subject which puts it to you in a nutshell. So watch that and circulate it as widely as you can because this um, story is the tip of a major iceberg.
1: Well, that's what the video is called, Sterling First, the Tip of the Iceberg.
0: And boy, did that come out in yesterday's hearing. So yesterday um, was a third in the series of hearings of this Sterling First Inquiry and it came about because um, during the course of the inquiry, there was a demand for certain documents regarding ASIC's treatment of this case and they were released after the previous set of hearings. So people like Longo had to be held answerable to what came out of those documents. So this is what came up yesterday.
1: Let me preface the importance of this for the, for the viewer, right? Just say this is a football show, talking about football. And just say the overwhelming issue with the football code, and everyone knows it, is that the umpires get bribed, but no one wants to talk about it. But if everyone knows that, we know that the discussion we're having about who's winning, who's not winning is a joke, unless you address that, right? Or just say... Um, Uh, Go watch The Untouchables, as we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, the movie about Elliot Ness taking on Al Capone. And what was the number one issue that he had to get around? The cops in Chicago were on Al Capone's payroll. That was the issue. Until that was addressed, nothing was going to happen, right? And that's what the movie's about. Well, your life, your economic life in Australia... As, as Australian citizens, you tr- you're just trying to do, go about your life and, and get ahead as well as possible, make sure that when you earn your money and you put it in the bank, everything can be safe, et cetera. You know the certain umpires called regulators, right? And you assume they do their job to make sure the system works honestly. And they don't. And that's why what we're talking about with sterling first is the tip of an iceberg. This case blows the whole... F- the whole system and the way it works wide open, but it's relevant to everybody. It's relevant to the daycare carer. It's relevant to the grandma who's deciding whether to move into a retirement home. It's relevant to everybody in between. All right, so I understand that. And then, Elisa, if people did understand that, what you, well, I'll tell you what is, uh, once you know the right places in the system to look at in terms of how the system's really run, um, and you get these inquiries, and you get these people whose personal attitudes and decisions shape the system, such as Joe Longo, mm. you get them on the stand and you can see how they really think, how it really ticks. It's actually quite dramatic. Mm. It's, it's gripping to watch this, these kinds of hearings. And we'll put some links to yesterday's hearing below, but we're going to play um, uh, a clip. But anyway, it was the third hearing, and as you said, it came about because there was this release of documents. Um the, the overall hearing included people like Mrs. Denise Braley, the, the, the champion of the victims, the Sterling First victims. She founded the Banking and Financial Consumer Support Association decades ago. And she has been, she knows ASIC better than anybody in the world, right? And um, so, you know, she gave, a, a, she, her, her testimony was devastating. She laid out the financial crime that was committed, an absolute crime which ASIC was looking the other way on. Um, they heard from the former head of ASIC, actually Tony Deloisio, and his his contribution was more about um, okay, here's here's how I think from my experience a regulator should be run, and this is where this is where ASIC is not up to um, based on the law, the policy of the government, you know, because the government has this commitment to caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. You want to have a free market system where it's every man for himself. That's actually the government's philosophy, and that was reflected in the hearing. He's saying it, you know, it's the bigger problem here is not. The specific decision making at ASIC, even though that is a problem, mm. the bigger problem here is the policy of the government, and that was quite useful. The Financial Planners Association uh, uh, testified, the, uh, the, 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 the tenancy lawyers from WA, because a lot of these victims are in WA around Mandurah. the tenancy lawyers testified, etc. But the big testimony was, again, the third appearance of ASIC, the regulator, by, led by the new chairman, Mr Longo. And so we're going to play a couple of clips because I can't do justice. Um, you know, the viewer will understand. You know, for someone like me who follows the hearings closely, you know, I'll appreciate all the nuances. They won't. So I'm thinking, how do I, how do I best um, display what this this hearing was about for ASIC? What was what? What does this hearing show in terms of the way ASIC operates? Well, this is a clip. Composed of little snippets of ASIC's testimony over the the three the three hearings, right? And you'll see pretty quickly where ASIC's coming from.
3: Can I be very clear with the committee? I'm not here to make excuses for any missteps, and I'm not trying to make excuses. As I say, I really want to stress to the inquiry, I'm not trying to make excuses, and I keep stressing, I'm not trying to make excuses.
2: Again, I'm not trying to make excuses.
3: Senator, I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm just trying to uh, sort of work through what we did.
1: And that's it. That's where ACS is coming from. There's 140-odd elderly people. They're very elderly. They're vulnerable. A lot of them are sick. 18 have already died since this collapsed. Um, they're, they're, they're facing eviction onto the street. A bunch of them have terminal illness. They're, they're all ruined. They're, they're going to lose everything. And ASIC and that chairman, Joe Longo, is mm. more intent on covering ASIC's butt because every time he said that, he was absolutely making an excuse.
0: And at one point he even said, this is a big hearing for a small number, number of, of victims. victims.
1: He, I, I think the, uh, the character of Mr Longo... I, mean, I don't want to say too much. It's not very impressive, to be honest. We knew that he was brought, the financial review earlier in the year said, after Josh Frydenberg railroaded James Shipton and Daniel Crennan out of asset because they were actually taking on the banks mm. and insisting the banks should fear the regulator, he railroaded them out and the financial review said that in Mr. Longo, Josh Frydenberg has brought back the business-friendly regulator he craves. Right, that's who Mr Longo is. He's a protector of the system. He's a gatekeeper for this system. Yep. They don't want to change the system. And so they're happy to, to watch these 140 victims fall off the cliff to their absolute devastation and ruin and early death for a bunch of them rather than change ASIC. And every time he said, I'm not making excuses, that's all he did in the three hearings. Um, the other thing he did... Like you said, he was indignant that they're even having the hearings. He said that why, this is a lot of effort for just uh, you know, a small hand, handful of victims. Now, here's, that's a bit of perspective for you right there. He's saying 100 to 140 victims is small. And that did come out in the hearing. They get 10,000 complaints a year. Yeah. That's how corrupt the system yeah. is. And all the ASIC people do is try, how can we ignore these complaints? Right? This sit, Australia is a paradise for white-collar criminals. Yeah. Uh, criminals, a former ASIC guy said, and they're determined to keep it that way. Someone, an insider in Parliament said to me this week, Joe Longo's job is the pendulum swung that way after the Royal Commission. His job is to swing it back, (laughs) right? And that's what he's doing to the detriment of these victims. And
0: he was complaining about how much time he's personally had to spend on this one case since he came in because he's only... He's been there six
1: months or so, Mm. right? And this has dominated his time. You know what that means? Pat you on the back, pat me on the back, every single viewer pat yourself on the back. Because we did this. We got involved with the, these victims, bless their hearts, they are fighters. They hung on for two years. Mm. Denise Braley is a warrior and she led them for the last two years. Um, and she tried to tell me last year about this, and we all talk, we'll talk about this and we're all tied up with the Australia Post, etc. But once we started looking at this, we thought we've got to get involved, right? And once we got involved, a lot of other people helped make phone calls, etc., and we got this inquiry, this has ruined his year. <laughs> and I'm glad about that. So, um, uh, but just one other thing before we play the next clip. He also insisted again and again and again that these victims are investors. Now, as you said earlier, they didn't know they were investors. Mm. This is, the problem is, you can call them, yes, they were technically investors. They were, they were duped. They were drawn into something they had no clue about. And what's the proof of that? Mm. There's two proofs of that. It came out of the hearings yesterday. There's no financial planners involved. With a lot of, I went to a financial planners conference last week to address them on some of our policies, and one of the things they told me about is every time there's a financial scandal, ASIC looks for the financial planners to blame because they're the, they're at the bottom of the rung, and ASIC just tries to put the blame on the financial planners. There's no financial planners involved in this. None of these victims were represented by a financial planner. Why? Why? Because they weren't investors. And All they I thought they were doing was mm. paying rent in advance for the rest of their life. Mm.
0: Right. Why would you go to a financial planner?
1: Exactly. And then ASIC said in the hearing yesterday. And for some reason, we talk about how one of their defences of themselves, they said, look, if this was such a big problem, why didn't any of the victims complain until it collapsed? They didn't complain because they didn't know they were in this trap.
0: They didn't complain to ASIC, which is the Securities and Investments Commission, exactly. because they weren't investors.
1: They were, they were just living their life in their houses until it all collapsed and suddenly no-one's paying their rent anymore and they're thinking, how'd this happen? Mm. They didn't know. And he knows that, but he's determined to to throw them under a bus and by insisting their investors that it it excludes them from the government's compensation scheme, right? Which is a a disgusting approach. Mm. But...
0: But he's not making excuses.
1: But he's not making excuses. Uh, Clearly he was. But then this happened in the hearing and I'll just set it up. So... Um, One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts has he's been in politics long enough where he's actually participated in other hearings over the years to do with financial victims. He, did a, he actually did a, conducted an inquiry himself with Wacker Williams in 2016. You might remember Wacker Williams was a National Party senator who got the Royal Commission up. So, so Malcolm Roberts has seen this before, and he, most of the time this, this inquiry has been conducted by two senators. Malcolm Roberts participated... And he be- he began a line of questioning to Joe Longo that was based on those documents you mentioned. He was actually the only one to systematically go through them, right? And so he makes he makes it clear from to Mr. Longo he's going to go through those questions, and I'll, I'll let you watch it. We're going to play a slightly lengthy clip here. The reaction you see from Mr. Longo was unprecedented in this whole hearing. He was. He is clearly alarmed at where the line of questioning is going. Okay. And it gets a bit messy, um, but watch it for yourself and see what you think.
4: Thank you, uh, Mr. Longo and uh, your colleagues from ASEC. Mr. Longo, would you agree that for buyer beware to work, buyers need to have access to all available information?
3: The general principle uh, buyer beware. Uh, Availability and also asking. Yeah. So the, you know, information clearly, as your question um, proposes, uh, information needs to be made available. But the classic application of the buyer beware principle is the buyer also has to ask questions and take an active interest in ensuring they're properly informed before
4: doing things. Thank you. Uh, before getting to my core questions, I need to reference information contained in the redacted internal ASIC chronologies that were provided to the Senate. I know some of the details have been labored over, yet I need to reiterate them for the purpose of these questions. So firstly, four points. In May 2015, ASIC concluded internally that Sterling had likely provided financial services while unlicensed. Secondly, Sterling had likely not provided adequate documentation to retail investors. Thirdly, Sterling had likely engaged in misleading and deceptive conduct. And fourthly, Sterling may have breached the requirement to not engage in conduct liable to mislead the public. Are these details correct or substantially correct?
2: Uh, So, um, Mr. Longo, do you want me to take that?
3: I was just talking to my general counsel. Go for it, um, uh, Reese.
2: So, yes, that's a a reference to an early complaint we received, um, the first one we received, which was from Foz. At that time, um, it appeared to be um, one breach um, without any uh, prior or later concerns. It was about a three-year-old breach already at the time. Um, And in the circumstances with a myriad of other complaints and referrals we had, um, we formed the view that no further action was needed at that time.
4: So they're correct. Thank you. So despite these conclusions, ASIC elected to not pursue an investigation at that time due to the age of the conduct and, and the other workloads, etc. So continuing to check my understanding, in June 2015, an ASIC staff member raised fresh concerns about Sterling providing unlicensed financial advice or that it may be engaged in misleading or deceptive conduct. And secondly, in the last fact I want to check, is that in September 2016, ASIC received a complaint that a Sterling victim had concerns about misleading and deceptive conduct and was unable to get information about what had happened to their investment and could not withdraw their investment as they had been led to understand that they could. Are those two points correct?
2: Um, That is a... Uh, a slight simplification, but yes, basically they are the second and third complaints that we've received. They're, they're referred to in our submission as well, Senator. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so in, Senator, can we,
3: we, uh, Senator, can I just ask, the, the, the line of questioning is rather, these points have been dealt with comprehensively in our written material, and I would respectfully ask that a, that a, the approach, the rather simplistic approach that I'm hearing this afternoon the the committee can inspect a supplementary written submission to comprehensively deal with the um, inferences it appears you wish to draw. But these matters have all been dealt with comprehensively in our written submissions, questions on notice, um, and do not change my earlier evidence that I believe ASIC behaved reasonably at all material times. I do respect the line of questioning, but I would ask the committee to expect a supplementary submission to confirm the position we've taken on these earlier reports that I believe were properly handled at the time. Thank
4: you. Uh, Thank you for repeating that uh, conclusion from yours. Um, In January 2017, ASIC assumed that Sterling's conduct fell within the small-scale offer exception for professional investors, despite a track record of complaints relating to retail investors. ASIC suspected that a new and ongoing managed investment scheme was in operation, a managed investment scheme was in operation. And despite all of this, ASIC recommended that no further action be taken in relation to sterling. Did ASIC commence any type of investigation before concluding no further action was required? And if so, specifically, what investigation steps?
3: Through the chair, uh, could I ask Senator Roberts to ask a question, please?
4: Yes, I, I just did. Um, did ASIC um, commence with respect, any type of have, investigation? quite a narrative that um,
3: uh, preceded your question, which makes it very hard to answer the question fairly, uh, given the premises upon which it's based, which uh, that are very hard to follow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Senator, Certainly, Mr Longo. Down. Certainly,
4: certainly Mr Longo. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, this is so what Senator, I asked.
3: Senator Roberts, if you can, um, just to make it um, as easy as possible for us all to follow, if you can really just... Go through the introductory points one by one that set up your question, just so we can we can we can understand the the preamble uh, to give the context to our witnesses from
4: ASIC. So, sure. over, over to you. Sure. What I'll what I'll do, Chair, is I'll address Mr Longo's request and ask the question, and then go through the the um, introductory comments. The question is, did ASIC commence any type of investigation before concluding that no further action was required? And if so, specifically, what investigation steps? Now, some of the earlier comments At what point in time are you asking me the question that we took no action? At what point in time are we talking about? Okay, thank you. So... What we're, what we're looking at here is trying to get an understanding because I've worked for the people of, of this country and I serve them. They pay my, my salary, they elected me, and I have to serve them. And I think that's what all, all members of the public service have to do as well, including members of ASIC. So what we need to understand is what, do you, what does ASIC see as the breaches? Of, were, there, were there breaches of law? Were there breaches of good faith? What's the core issue? Is it capacity of ASIC? Is it capability of ASIC? Is it structural? Is it a legislative or parliamentary fix? What's the intent going on here? So, so that's overall where I'm heading because I can either help you or undermine you.
1: <laughs> and, I, I, and I had to, I had to put, include, I, I just I cut a little bit there and jump to that part where um, Malcolm reiterates why he's asking these questions and that ASIC too serves the people of Australia, right, because that's what he was getting Joe Longo was, was acting like a, um, uh, a, a defendant uh, lawyer in a court case mm. whose job is to run interference with, the, with the, uh, the prosecutor, say, you know, objection, 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 right? He was trying to muddy the water. All, all Malcolm Roberts was trying to go through was go through the documents that ASIC was forced to hand over by the Senate, and, they, and those documents show how badly they failed, mm. right? This... ASIC has clearly run out of excuses... We now have to see what the final report will be. It's possible there'll be, you know, that there'll be more of this early in the new year.
0: Yeah, two things. One, um, ASIC mentioned or mooted a potential supplementary submission, which yeah. would raise further questions. So that raises the issue of further hearings. And secondly, I was just going to make the point that if everything, if all Longo's defences of ASIC are genuine and correct oh, my God, the system is worse than what we thought, basically. It's thoroughly
1: broken. No, yeah. you're right. They can't have it both ways. they
0: got 10,000 complaints a year. Yeah. They cursorily assess each of them and move on. You know, it's 10 to 5, as someone joked in our office, and like, oh, that claim now nah, we will just dismiss that one. Um, let's move on. So, yes, this system is broken. And, of course, what we're going to talk about in the next topic is how to change that. Yeah. So four years of breakthroughs in fight against the money power. Uh, we were looking, you were looking back over this um, when you spoke at the um, Financial Planners Association event last week and realised that we'd actually, in the last four years, achieved six inquiries, Senate inquiries, that would not otherwise have taken place. Yep. So they included uh, in uh, 2017 a Senate inquiry into the bail-in uh, legislation.
1: Well, and, and bear in mind, we say four years because it is, it, it is exactly four years. You and I are recording this on the on the uh, the 16th of December. By the time it's posted on on, uh, YouTube, it will be the 18th of December. Remember, four years ago, the 18th of December was the deadline for the submissions to the first hearing we achieved, which was the hearing into the bail-in law, right? Financial, sector, legislation, uh, amendment, amendment, crisis resolution, powers and others measures bill, right? And um, Doug Mitchell in our office, one of our uh, activists, he had, on a, on a lazy Friday afternoon, um, the government released this bill at that time, knowing that no one would be paying attention, not knowing that re- some random guy in a Coburg office in Melbourne um, would be seeing it on his, on his computer screen. And he dug forwards it to me and says, Robbie, is this bailing? Because we'd heard, we had done so much work on bailing going back seven years to 2013, and- when it first happened in Cyprus where you can, you, know, you can take a portion of people's bank accounts to prop up failing banks. And we had done an investigation then, and that investigation re- revealed there was plans for bail-in legislation in Australia. And we'd been on a look at it for, for seven years, right? And so this was three years later, well, for, for three or four years by then. And Doug saw it, and Doug saw the language and said, is this bail-in? And we looked at it, and we saw that it had this, this loophole l- language in it, right, that um, a conversion and write-off of, of uh, uh, instruments... Can apply to bonds or any other instrument. And we thought, well, that's really, really broad language. If that's if that's cash deposits in banks, right, that's bail-in. Um, and that led to we got an inquiry up into the bill.
0: Mm. And that's
1: when we met Senator Hume.
0: Yes, Senator Jane Hume, the Senator for Bankers, led that inquiry. And she also led another inquiry which uh, got going the following year. Um, into Glass-Steagall, we had Bob Catter, MP for Kennedy, who tabled our legislation for Glass-Steagall, to stop banks speculating. Any deposit-taking bank cannot engage in speculation because Remember it risks that, the money.
1: And, and, Elisa, that came out of the fact that after Hume conducted the bailing inquiry, she was one of only eight senators present in the chamber when they rushed the bailing law in, bill into law, mm. and everyone was shocked about that, and we publicised that. And I had first met Bob Catter... Um, uh, I met Bob Catter that evening... Uh, oh no, the night before, but it had already passed the house because he's, he's in the house, and and he said, "Well, what can we do?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "What you can do is come up is is come up with the antithesis to Bailey, which is Glass Eagle. Separate the banks so they don't get into trouble in the first place." Yeah. And he was happy to do it. So he introduced the bill in twenty eighteen, and then Pauline Hanson reintroduced it in twenty nineteen, mm-hmm. in the Senate, and we got an inquiry up into that
0: in twenty nineteen. That's right, uh, and then. The cash ban bill was the next one, which there was a Senate inquiry in 2019. We had, in combination with a whole host of other forces across the country, it was a massive campaign, uh, that was defeated and they dropped the bill by the end of 2020. We'll put up the Sydney Morning Herald headline declaring it dead, dead, dead.
1: That was a huge victory and it's probably, in recent years, it's probably the biggest clear victory that we've had. Um, uh, You know, there was... Uh, an activist involved in anti-money laundering tipped off John Adams, the economist, former Liberal Party adviser. John Adams tipped off me. Uh, our our organisation went on a huge mobilisation. John Adams and Martin North, on on their channel, Interest of the People." Martin North's channel, "Walk the World." You know, he got me on there. Was, for a long time, his interview with me on that channel was the biggest interview he ever did. A lot of people paid attention to the cash ban. We got an inquiry. The, the Labour Party was going to tick off support for it. Instead, we turned everything around. We, got, we flooded an initial consultation with the greatest amount of, of, of submissions they've ever received. And then that led to a Senate inquiry, and we got that up. And I think I might have mentioned it on the show last week because the late Senator Alex Gallica mm. has only recently died. But there's a video on, our, on YouTube. You can go and find that video of Alex Gallica, the Labor Party senator from South Australia, asking all the government departments in a row in December 2019, where's the evidence for this cash ban? and none of them can give him any, and that was the, the beginning of the end for the cash ban. still took a year for the government to withdraw the bill, right, but they'd never seen a grassroots reaction like it.
0: Yeah, and we saw Liberals um, revolting against their own government, which, of course, has been escalating over the recent couple of years. And,
1: but, and, and just underscore, these inquiries are not bureaucratic exercises. What they, If you pay attention to... I, talk, I met a 20-year-old in Newcastle, um, last week at a, at a bar because he'd heard, seen me on YouTube, he wanted, to, he wanted to meet me and he had other interests and we were discussing that but then he told me how because he's come around us, he's, he's paid attention to the Sterling First thing which in any other universe he would have no interest in something that relates to a bunch of elderly people in Western Australia and he's in Newcastle in, in New South Wales but he found the hearings gripping mm. because he's paid attention to the details, because what you see is you force these decision makers to account for themselves. And it's actually a great um, way to p- directly participate through our democratic processes. And the cash ban was the best one. right? Mm. It, it just ripped the mask off this agenda and they couldn't go anywhere with it.
0: Yep. Now, in February 2020, uh, we put up with Senator Malcolm Roberts, One Nation Senator, the uh, amendment to amend the bail-in legislation that we talked about before. Yes. And that led to an inquiry into whether that was necessary, which recommended against the legislation, that inquiry. Um, meanwhile, people like John Hewson were saying it's a no-brainer to have legislation like this. However, John Hewson
1: said that, and the former, the, the best part of that inquiry is a former director of the Australian Banking Association... Who's also a former senior adviser to John Howard actually came out saying essentially mm. those of us who are, who think this is a bail-in law are right. He confirmed we were right.
0: Yeah,
1: we didn't. It led to a vote. It's the first time we've actually achieved a vote in Parliament on one of these bills. Now it was voted down, but because there was a senator on the Liberal side going to cross the floor, um, Josh Frydenberg and Scott Morrison had a panic attack. And they said, well, hang on, don't cross the floor, what can we do? And that, that there's now, an, an, it's not complete, but there's an ongoing negotiation behind the scenes to come up with a way to amend that bail-in law to um, exclude deposits from any bail-in. Because that's the government's position. They claim that, that their law won't, won't exclude deposits. We say it's not clear enough. And there is a process of trying to resolve that behind the scenes. It's still ongoing now.
0: Mm. Um- now, then we had the campaign earlier this year, which feels like it was an eternity ago, but the Australia Post-Christine Holgate affair had come to a head, of course, at the end of last year, and so we forced that to an inquiry because of her um, dismissal and the way that it occurred with the Prime Minister dictating in the Parliament that she must go.
1: And remember how that came about, because this is, this is an example where it really does come down to the Citizens Party and our supporters really uniquely. Nobody was interested in that. Nobody was interested in defending a fat cat bureaucrat who'd given away gold watches. How dare she? And I saw the licensed post office group who are the pe- the small business franchisees who run post offices around Australia. I saw their leader Angela Cramp in the press saying Christine Holgate was the best CEO Australia Post ever had mm. and I thought this does not compute. Yeah. I couldn't I, J- Scott, Scott uh, Morrison's performance in the parliament that day was so over the top. I thought that stinks, and I heard that, and and I called them up, and they told me their side of it. That one, it had happened two years earlier when everyone was acting like she'd just given away these gold watches in the middle of the COVID pandemic. No, it happened two years earlier, but then it happened because she took on the banks and made them pay more money. And as soon as I and we knew that also that she supported the postal bank, and as soon as I heard that, I thought, of course, she's made herself an enemy of the banks. And then the other picture to emerge was that she was also the main obstacle to the government's longstanding agenda to privatise Australia Post. And we just kept publicising that. We changed public opinion. It led to the inquiry. What did the inquiry achieve? It killed the privatisation agenda dead, mm. completely dead. It, it, right now, that's politically impossible. It did help her clear a name. Unfortunately, we couldn't get her job back, but it did help her clear a name. But that's what we achieved out of that. Now, we're going to make sure that that turns into our, a bigger fight for a postal bank.
0: Yep. Just number six on that list to mention was the Sterling First Inquiry, but we've already covered that. But coming back to the Postal Bank, because this is what we want to talk about next. Look, this is the big issue that terrifies the banks and the global banking fraternity, and therefore it's the big issue that we need to fight on in this next year. We have legislation prepared and ready to go which MP Bob Catter will table at the first opportunity um, to uh, bring back essentially what the old Commonwealth Bank used to be and you can read in uh, the latest Australian Alert Service and contact us for a complimentary copy if you've never read one before Uh, about the Commonwealth Development Bank, which was shuttered by the the same Campbell Committee inquiry in the early 80s that defined the system today which has done over these 140 elderly Sterling First victims because it defined um, the efficient markets, deregulated system, and it also deliberately dismantled the Commonwealth Credit Development Bank. Commonwealth... um, Development Bank. Development Bank.
1: And the Commonwealth Bank.
0: And the Commonwealth Bank was privatised as a result of that because that inquiry basically stated public banking is off the agenda. Um, You can also read from another standpoint of importance to our campaign uh, in the lead of this Australian Alert Service that the issue of national banking is critical to stabilise our economies that are facing an economic breakdown after three to four decades of neoliberalism and are facing a new global financial crisis which will be unprecedented uh, in a similar way to that prior to both previous world wars we were facing global financial crisis. Uh, everyone knows in the lead-up to World War II the 1929 Great Depression uh, Great Crap, crash of um, 1929 and the Great Depression that ensued but also prior to World War I there was a similar uh, financial breakdown that also precipitated a geopolitical crisis and what we're seeing today is a similar geopolitical situation where the dominant countries who dominate the current economic framework see that they're losing control of that system and they will do anything to defend it. So we need to bring the issue of national banking right back to centre stage. Now it's been at centre stage, there's actually been a lot of inquiries, whether it be on farming and credit for farming, whether it be on manufacturing, Uh, small business, and we've covered some of them in this week's alert service, and constantly people will raise, we need a bank that will specially cater for small business, that will specially cater for these areas of the economy that we need to foster. And look, in 2017, in the lead up, as the Royal Commission, the Banking Royal Commission was brewing, and these issues were being raised, you had... People like Bill Shorten called for a government manufacturing bank. You had small business ombudsman, Kate Carnell, calling for a government bank for small business. Even then Treasurer Scott Morrison (laughs) called for an affordable housing finance corporation. These were all somewhat modelled on the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which is the only government or one of a couple of government development banks that function in that way by putting credit into a certain area, in that case to foster renewable um, development. In 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, we put out a call, Citizens Party, uh, for that bank to be co-opted to fund infrastructure on an urgent basis.
1: We wanted it. We wanted it. It's, it's there. It's the credit. It has the credit mechanism expanded? for a massive redevelopment of Australia in the context of the depression.
0: George Christensen in 2020 called a inquiry in the Parliament into diversifying our trade and investment. They proposed a government development bank to fund manufacturing and so forth. The government just responded to that in August and they, they said it, they noted that recommendation but that it would be best to evaluate the government's success in its current 10-year modern manufacturing strategy, Before considering a development bank to invest in Australia's manufacturing capacity. So there you have it. That's how they always end. And
1: that modern manufacturing strategy is worth something like $1.5 billion. It is pennies compared to the pounds that are actually needed. Um, But if we had them, we could transform the country. And that's what a bank can provide. Mm. The principle here, if if people aren't clear on it, why why do the private banks hate a public bank so much? Banking is powerful. Right, the, the the power to create credit, you you can read histories about it, and people, even the bankers themselves, say, man, if people knew we can create credit, it's it's actually not that mysterious. It seems mysterious, but and it's a legitimate power. The power to create credit is a legitimate power, and the private banks want it as a monopoly, because if governments use it for the the public good, to build infrastructure, invest in the in the um, the important industries that the private banks aren't that interested in investing in, etc. You, you, you sort of rip the mask off these private bankers, and you realise: hang on, they just they just use this power for their own ends to steal from us all. Essentially, right, whack us with big interest bills and all this kind of stuff. It doesn't need to be done that way. Banking can be controlled, and where the power is, there's still the power there, but do it in a controlled way, right, where it benefits everybody. People can still profit, but it's got to serve the economy, right, not. Um, not be the master of the economy, and that's what—that's why you're not going to—they're not going to voluntarily do it, Elisa. Mm. You got to have a public option because the government owns the public bank, and the government's accountable to us, mm. right?
0: And that's why Christine Holgate's proposal for a postal bank, in a nutshell, was you know a terrifying thing. And one of
1: the reasons that banking the financial crisis turned into war. As, as you are indicated is because yeah it becomes the financial crisis means there's something wrong with the economic system mm. of some of one or more sides right and they want to defend this this money power the money power is the private vested interests who control banking and right now the target is China but China's not a communist country anymore it is, it is by name, not by its economy mm. but you know what's at the core of that economy? four very big, very powerful government banks, mm-hmm. public banks. So yeah, they're, they're a capitalist economy in many respects, but the engine is a system where the money is under the control of the government that's accountable in, in their way to the people.
0: And that was modelled on something devised by the Americans in opposition yep. to the British free trade imperial system. So you can find out more about all of this, subscribe to our Australian Alert Service, you can join us as a member, we have you know can't get time to talk about all of it, um, but we'll put the relevant links below. Um, don't forget to like, share, subscribe and... Um,
1: call, call those... Uh, We'll put the link below to the press release. Call the ministers about Julian Assange. Put in your um, uh, well, you probably already have. But uh, follow the, these inquiries that we've we've got up, including the uh, regional banking task force, which is a very important one. And um, what else? Merry That's Christmas.
0: <laughs> That's it for this week. Thanks, Robbie.
1: Where, when are we back?
0: We're back on the fifteenth of January. So we'll see you. We won't see you next week. We'll see you then. See you then.